Welcome to the Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that presents the best of Lumpin' Radio each week. This week, we chatted about the birth of children's television in America, discussed a potential teacher strike, and learned how the rule of law may not be what it's cracked up to be. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now and the Biden Files. It's the Lumpin' Week in Review for January 29th, 2021. Mario Smith spoke with CTU Delegate Tara Stamps about the looming showdown between CPS and their teachers. Stamps talked about the breakdown in trust between the teachers and the school system, revealed the poverty of COVID mitigation efforts, and argued that sending teachers back to schools would have far-reaching and not well-thought-out ill effects. News from the service entrance is every Thursday at 2 p.m. Our first guest out the gate uh, this afternoon um, is Tara Stamps. Tara Stamps is uh, a representative of the Chicago Teachers Union. And if you, I, I don't know where you've been, if you're living in Chicago and you don't know what's going on, the Chicago Teachers Union, rightfully so, is asking that schools be reopened once it's safer than it is right now for teachers and students to come in and do their thing. And we asked Tara to be on the show today. How you doing, Tara? I'm good. How are you? I'm a, I'm a little beleaguered, but all things considered, I'm here and I'm healthy. And so I'm anything glad else to hear can, Anything else can be handled. Absolutely. Um, I want to start off by asking the, the, I would say the obvious question, but it may not be such an obvious question. Why is there such a push from the Chicago Public Schools to, and the mayor to get people back in school when teachers haven't even been vaccinated yet? Oh, wow. You ask a wonderful question and I wish that I had an answer for you, but alas, I do not. Um, That has been our question as well as um, you know that districts near us, uh, Evanston, Skokie, um, have worked hand in hand with their uh, Department of Health to make sure that all teachers are vaccinated um, prior to you know, as a part of the plan to get mm-hmm. children back in school. So why that is that is so elusive to our mayor is beyond me. That's been one of the things that we've asked up front. Um, and there's been no concrete plan put in place to, to get that done. We do know that some teachers will be vaccinated. However, at this juncture, there's no concrete plan that anyone can share with us that says what that rollout looks like. I want to read a quote to you from the president of the United States. A reporter asked him earlier this week, quote, do you believe, sir, that teachers should return to schools now? He didn't answer the question, a close quote, he didn't answer the question directly, but he did say that schools should be safe before teachers return. Here's his quote, quote, I believe we should make school classrooms safe and secure for the students, for the teachers, and for the help that are in those schools maintaining the facilities, close quote. Quote, We need new ventilation for those schools. We need testing for those coming in and out of the classes. We need testing for teachers as well as students. And we need the capacity, the capacity to know the fact of the circumstance and the school is safe and secure for everyone, close quote. I am a Chicago public school, school alum. I know that those buildings were 150 years old when I was in school. And that was 150 years ago. (laughs) I know that they don't have proper ventilation in those schools yet. Even if they say they do, I don't believe that. Mm. How is this happening without there being at least some kind of plan that people can see where they're saying, we want you to come back because we've done a, B and C to a school. Like let's say 
um, Myra Bradwell on the southeast side of Chicago over on 77th and Burnham. Um, we've changed the HVAC and the ventilation in that school to make it safer. Is, has that even been part of the plan? That you That's know been of? part of the plan that we've asked for. But what we received were some little air air ventilating machines um, that has the capacity to clear the air for about 500 square feet. Mm -hmm. And not all of the buildings were outfitted with those. Even that's um, not, that doesn't even scratch the surface as to what is needed. But I just want to be transparent about what was provided, which we know is woefully inadequate. But I want to, I want to go on to, I think you were alluding to say that you're a CPS, a parent, and perhaps even a former CPS student. And so what I'm going to say right now is that this fight uh, with CPSA should not be happening. Um, this is a false choice when you're putting people's lives on the line and you know that this is present danger. Like we're not making the facts up. We didn't start the pandemic. We didn't. All we're doing is re responding to it in a way that we think is responsible for our uh, members and for our families and children. We know for a fact that CPS is majority brown and black students. We know that for a fact. The numbers bear that out. We know that in many of these zip codes, they have some of the highest um positivity rates in the state and some of the zip codes on the south and west side we know that what needs to be done in those buildings to make parents feel safer to make children and students and all the stakeholders feel safer have not been done but this cannot be just ctu's fight we need parents to raise their voice and 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 execute their agency and we need other community stakeholders to raise their voice and to support that we want the children to go back to school the same as CTU. But as the, the newly elected president so adequately and expertly said, we have a right to return to safe conditions. And that's all we've asked. So um, we've just said prioritize our safety. Like this should not be hard. This should not have come to this point. We are nearing a year. So you knew when you took kids out of school and you took parents, I mean, uh, educators out of school last March that, that we were going to have to have a reentry plan. So you've had the better part of a year to, to sit down and negotiate to compromise what that reentry plan needs to look like. And um, unfortunately, um, CPS is so, um, um, uh, non-responsive to issues to critical issues and so whereas you know um there's been lots of negotiation going on in these last couple weeks as we continue to raise the stakes we um are still not at the place where we need to compromise i mean we're at the table or we've had representatives at the table and we you know things have been said like well maybe hypertension is not a you know, or diabetes, well, maybe, maybe, you know, a heart, you know, if it's a heart condition and maybe they can get accommodation. Are you kidding me? You know, like, mm. so um, some of the things that have been said, uh, I don't, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn and disclose anything that I'm not supposed to. But for me, as a mother um, of CPS students, as a CPS um, teacher, and now as a, as a, uh, of an employee with Chicago Teachers Union, I am grieved that we are at this point. I think it's heartbreaking 
that we have um, two sisters at the helm of this decision that cannot make a decision to put the safety of black lives um, and brown lives as a priority in a city that is in a school district that is up that is that you only have cps schools because black and latino mamas and daddies decided they're gonna still trust their children in the system so mm. um if there are no babies then there's no system if there's no um aren't teachers to teach those children then there's no system you cannot sit in your ivory tower from downtown and try to exact what needs to happen for the people who need to carry out the work. And, you know, I've even been saying, how about this? How about we try this, Lori? How about we take CTU out of the conversation? How about that? We're going to do something so novel. How about you just listen to the brother who represents the principals? Mm -hmm. Troy LaRavie mm -hmm. said the same thing. That says CTU is not even sitting down with them. How about you listen to Dr. Gupta? Who came on and did a live press conference with us in a town hall, a virtual town hall, with our members to say, this is an irresponsible plan. I'm looking at bodies all day. The day that we inaugurated the president and the, and the vice president, 4,400 people died that day due to COVID. We are still having 20, 20,000, 20,000, 25,000 people die a week due to COVID. How about we hold off? And this is Dr. Gupta and roll out a comprehensive vaccination plan. And then we can have these conversations about what it needs to look like to open the buildings. And then lastly, as you said, you took a quote from our president. So um, if the president of the United States see that it is important for the buildings to be ventilated, that people have a right to return to safe conditions, that everybody needs to have their cars on the table face up, then I, I mean, I don't know how, who you need to hear from to um, make a decision that says, I'm going to protect lives. I'm going to put lives before profit or whatever else you're doing, the bottom line, because you said so, your own um, ego. I don't really know what's holding uh, Lori Lightford up, but teachers have been ready to go back to school for a long time. But we are only prepared to go back to school, provided that the conditions are safe and that um, other folks who have been penalized for putting their lives first
The boys from I-94 spoke with David Camp, author of Sunny Days, a look at the early years of children's television. Camp talked about the genesis of Sesame Street, the enduring power of Mr. Rogers, and why Fat Albert remains important despite Bill Cosby. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. David, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Nice to be with you. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time out to talk to us. A really interesting book, David. Uh, and in fact, I wanted to kind of start off with uh, you and I are about the same age, and we were in that first cohort of kids that saw Sesame Street and kind of grew up with Mr. Rogers. Um I wanted to talk a little bit about the genesis of that. Your book goes deep into the history of children's television, really predating Captain Kangaroo, Mr. Rogers, all the way through Zoom and the Electric Company. Right. Children's programming to that point had kind of gone in one direction or another. One direction was kind of very stiff educational programming from well-intentioned public TV stations that were basically trying to turn teachers into TV personalities um, but it was just kind of boring and and, uh, and inert. And the other thing was kind of that baby boomer howdy doody kind of thing where it was very commercialized and in, in my opinion, kind of assaultive where you saw Buffalo Bob Smith saying like, hey, kids, we're coming at you and, and kind of uh, abrasive and assaultive, even though I know the boomers love that stuff. So this happens to Generation X, that's our generation in late 60s and early 70s, when there's this onslaught of TV that's kind of like, um, I would say more emotionally attuned and sensitive, reaching kids on their own uh, emotional level, basically. And we're talking about Sesame Street, um, to some degree, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, the electric company, Free to Be You and Me, which is Marlo Thomas's feminist politics primer for little kids. And there's other shows in that in Schoolhouse Rock you can lump together. What they have in common is kind of a progressive bent to them that they're trying to sort of advance kids to this new age of acceptance and tolerance. And there's also a kind of great aesthetic uh, freewheeling quality to all these programs. They are all vaguely psychedelic. They're all kind of in, informed by rock music and, and kind of that Peter Max saturated multicolor aesthetic. I wanted to write about an American success story. Um, I conceived this book, the idea for it, in 2015. Now, now, from where we sit today, 2015 sounds like paradise. You know, there, there was no pandemic, uh, and, and, and we hadn't yet seen the man go down the escalator and announce his candidacy. That said, even then, I sensed, you know, the acute polarization that we're living through now, the way people are so dug in. And I just wanted to say, like, what, what I wanted to examine a little slice of American history that, in my opinion, worked out for the best, in which people of noble intent set out to do something good, changed the course of children's television in America, um, and helped the least fortunate. And by lifting up the least fortunate, it would lift up all children. I wanted to sort of back formulate how that happened, tell the reader that story, and not just to entertain the reader with that story or tap into the nostalgia of people who are now in their 40s and 50s for that era, but also maybe inspire readers to say, hey, it's been done before. It can be done again, that we can, through, through TV, through the medium of TV, achieve um, something pretty special and great for American children. 
interestingly, and I, I thought about this even when I was younger, you know, most of the people that watched PBS, I thought, were kind of white upper class people. So did Sesame Street really succeed in its goal to reach that urban core? And how did it do it? I think it very much succeeded in that goal. And um, part of it was, I mean, the, the actual logistics of it were, they, they had all, when we talked about the rigorous preparation, they had a whole department called Department of Utilization, which really meant community outreach. They basically went to the urban leagues, you know, the African-American urban leagues that existed in, in various cities throughout the country and enlisted people in them to kind of do community outreach just to create awareness of the show. Because you have to remember that not everyone had a color TV. Not everyone had access to a TV in their house back then. It wasn't it wasn't ubiquitous the way the way streaming is now. And so and, and, and as you said, the default PBS watching family back then was kind of a, a middle class or upper upper middle class family. So how do you even get you know the 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 intended demographic of of poor black families to watch the show? And a lot of it was just like 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 canvassing on the ground. Like in New York City, they actually had Con Edison, the utility, devote uh, uh, sorry donate. Uh, literal promotional vehicles, repurposed Con Ed trucks that had like early video cassette machines in them where they could actually drive around and play excerpts of the show um, to get people excited. And then they would have community viewing centers. So if you didn't have a TV in your apartment, you could meet in a church basement or in a rec room of, 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 a, of a housing complex. And, and they even did things like they passed out leaflets at uh, a football game at Yankee Stadium between Morgan State and Grambling State, two historically black colleges, because they knew that there was the audience where everyone there would be black, and therefore what a great place to raise awareness of this show. So they really were ingenious about getting the word out about the show, and it really was successful in cultivating that audience. Can we talk a little bit about the backlash that Sesame Street uh received and we are predominantly talking about Sesame Street right now and that was a focus of the book but we'll move on to some of the other uh the shows uh I actually was not a fan of Mr. Rogers when I was a kid oh really no I like the urban stuff oh I like I like Fred Rogers (laughs) we'll talk to him after the break but yeah I think this and you know you mentioned there's a good chapter on on Roosevelt the the Muppet that uh Roosevelt Franklin yes Mm mm-hmm I remember that well, song too, Roosevelt Franklin's Elementary School. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's a good song. Well, as as far as backlash, Jeremy, it was kind of all over the map. It wasn't just from. It wasn't just. I mean, there there were right wing people in Mississippi who hated the fact that the show was integrated. In fact, oh. Mississippi Public Television didn't want to air the show at first. Um, but then it, the, the national press basically shamed them. Like it, it, it looked so bad for Mississippi that they had chosen not to air the show on their public stations that they were essentially shamed in, in, in a good way, in my opinion, for do, uh, into showing Sesame Street. But on the other end of things, there was this critique that, oh, they're trying to reach a black audience, but it's too sanitized. It's not real enough. Like Sesame Street is, is too smiley and it doesn't depict, you know, how, how harrowing circumstances really are in the inner cities. And Lloyd Morissette wrote a memoir five years after Sesame Street came out in which he said, we actually considered that. We actually considered like, what if we made Sesame Street seedier than it was depicted as being? Um, and, and some people did react. They thought that Oscar the Grouch was meant to be a proxy for the black tenement dweller, that someone so poorly has to live in a garbage can, which was not remotely their intent. But the very fact that 
that um, that was an impression was something that that they had to take into account. It's something you brought up earlier, Jamie, about how they did make mistakes and how and like, for example, they didn't represent Latin American viewers at all, really, in the first two seasons. And Latin American viewers, uh, you know, uh, community leaders actually met with Joan Gans Cooney and said, hey, you're, you're selling us short. You're screwing up. And rather than say, how dare you? I'm this saint who's uh, preparing this um, exemplary piece of children's programming. She said, you know what? You're right. And that's why that's why Luis, uh, played by Emilio Delgado, and Maria, played by Sonia Manzano, were added to the show in 1971. And they both stayed on for 40-something years. But yeah, so I mean, there was a lot of fraught, charged political stuff surrounding Sesame Street. And I think part of the genius and wonder of Joan Gans Cooney is that she listened. She didn't push back and say, I'm right and you're wrong. She was open to critique, which very few powerful white people in positions of leadership are. Day is tomorrow. That means today is Palatine's Day. I just hope it's not hitting up craft breweries in Palatine. No, it's just two dudes hanging out doing stuff you'd normally do with a lady. <laughs> I didn't get you any roses. Roses? What are you talking about? You well, think I'm a rose hey. guy? I'm a rhododendra guy. We've known each other for two years and you still don't know what kind of flowers I like? Okay, relax. I was joking. That's fine. I'm still not joking. Okay, what kind of roses do I like, Kyle? How would I know? You don't share anything. I bet you spent all your money on Valentine's Day stuff. Yeah, I did. I spent Valentine's Day with my girlfriend, not my creepy squatter friend. Nah, no worries. But I'd like to let our neighbors know <laughs> that you don't have to have a pal for Valentine's Day. Because if you don't have a pal to treat you like a lady, you okay. can treat yourself like one. So what's first? First, we're going to get our toenails did. We are at Rita's Nail and Taxes Salon, about to get our toenails did. And for our listeners, this is not a legitimate business. 
Why are you so down about this whole experience? This is something I should be doing with Claire. I, I bought the nails or the taxes. Kyle, good to see you, honey. Oh, Rita, honey, thanks for fitting us in. Who is your friend? He's shy. Well, hello, shy. You ticklish? <laughs> yeah, sort of. I'm John. Well, why don't you take your shoes off and we'll get going? Yeah, there you go. Did you bring your W-2? Nah, we're just getting our nails dead. Oh my gosh. What? Your feet are pristine. Yeah, no duh. You can thank me for that. <laughs> You're too good to me, Wait, Rita. So, so what <laughs> smells like Cool Ranch Doritos all the time? I use an exfoliant foot rub Rita makes. It's absolutely amazing. <laughs> oh, Kyle. Really? It's not just for feet. It's a huh. chicken and pork rub, too. You're a doll, Rita. Oh, you uh, saved... Did I tell you she saved oh, my feet? you're I, too nice. That's really interesting. Now, you go ahead and you take your shoes off. <sighs> okay. My blue heaven! That's Murray Abraham. What the ship is wrong with your feet? Those aren't feet. Those <sighs> are hooves. Yeah, this is why I didn't want to do this, by the way. It looks like the Incredible Hulk and a Hobbit had feet babies. Listen, this has always been an issue for me, so please... I bet you could kick through a brick wall with those. <sighs> I'll okay. be honest. Not cool. You can uh, fit about three more toes on each uh, of them feet. You're gonna need a bigger pumice stone. Oh, uh, this is so embarrassing. Where you buy shoes from? Probably a cobbler. Okay, I get it. Okay, if it's that bad, we could just go. All right, Rita, I'm sorry. Okay, I, I can do this. Just gotta get my headphones <sighs> on, get the Rocky Three soundtrack going. Rocky Three. That's the best one. Ow! Don't move right. now. Okay. Just take it in. Ow! You know, I can't believe I'm the one with the normal feet. Whatever. What do you want to do after this? I kind of lost my appetite. I think we might just call it a night after this. Fine by me. Great. You know, feet like that, I gotta ask. Are you sure you're not from Bridgeport? Uh, uh. This week on The Biden Files, House members plotted with Trump to overturn the election. Biden says as many as 600,000 Americans may die from the pandemic. Trump asked the Justice Department to sue Georgia at the Supreme Court. The Justice Department nearly suffered a coup, and Republicans continue to back Trump as his trial looms. Is this a new America? These are The Biden Files. Day 2, January 21st, President Joe Biden pledged a full-scale wartime effort to combat the pandemic, signing a string of executive orders and directives in the hope of blunting the worst public health crisis in America in a century. Those moves essentially federalized and centralized the pandemic response, something Trump refused to do. Biden moved to increase food aid, protect job seekers on unemployment, and cleared a path for federal workers to make $15 an hour. Biden is aiming now for a million vaccinations a day. However, his team got a nasty shock overnight when they discovered that, in fact, no vaccine distribution plan was in place, despite Trump's insistence one existed. Biden's transition team had been stonewalled for weeks. Also, all agree that vaccine supply remains a major hurdle. The United States is now expected to run dry in April. In Congress, Republicans signaled they were unwilling to work with Democrats on multiple issues unless they agreed to preserve the filibuster. That would allow Republicans to essentially block all legislation. Several GOP members reached out to Biden, signaling some promise on some issues. Meanwhile, the House is preparing to send articles of impeachment against Trump to the Senate. That trial is expected to be short and nasty, lasting perhaps only three days. Trump has reportedly retained a lawyer named as Butch Bowers for that trial. 
The pandemic continues to cause worldwide carnage. Brazil announced its famous Carnival in Rio would be canceled. The United Kingdom said their tough lockdown was likely to continue through February. Portugal is closing all schools. Mexico is now seeing a huge second surge in cases. Africa is seeing fatality rates in excess of worldwide numbers, causing grave concern. And Biden said soberly that the USA is heading swiftly towards 600,000 fatalities. We could hit 500,000 by the end of February. Day 3, January 22nd. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said an article of impeachment charging Trump with incitement of insurrection will be transmitted to the Senate on Monday, triggering the start of his second impeachment trial. Under a deal with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, that trial will be delayed to February 8th so Trump can mount a defense. Under normal Senate rules, an impeachment trial must begin within one day after the House transmits the article if that chamber is in session. Battle lines are hardening, with some Republicans saying a trial now should not be held at all. However, dozens of influential Republicans, including a group of former Trump administration officials, are lobbying GOP senators to convict Trump. Dr. Anthony Fauci said that the Trump administration's resistance to following the science on the coronavirus very likely cost American lives. Fauci also described what he called the liberating feeling of being able to, quote, get up here and talk about what you know, what the evidence, what the science is, and know that's it. Fauci also said his family had received death threats. Biden revoked an order banning federal agencies, contractors, and recipients of federal funding from conducting diversity training. Trump had claimed the workplace trainings were un-American and somehow harmful to white workers. It was revealed that a previously obscure Justice Department lawyer worked with Trump to fire the Attorney General. Jeffrey Clark devised a plan with Trump to oust Acting General Jeffrey Rosen and then used the J.D.'s power to force Georgia state lawmakers to overturn its election results. Clark had told Trump he spent a lot of time, quote, reading on the internet, a comment that alarmed his colleagues because they inferred that he believed an unfounded conspiracy theory that Trump had won the election. Clark also told him he wanted the department to hold a news conference announcing he was investigating serious accusations of election fraud, Rosen demurred. Clark had been devising ways to cast doubt on the results and to bolster Trump's continuing legal battles. Because Rosen had refused Trump's entreaties to carry out those plans, Trump was about to decide whether to fire Rosen and replace him with Clark. That plan collapsed during a conference call when the officials said they would resign en masse. Trump then forced Rosen and Clark to make their case to him in a White House meeting that two officials compared with an episode of The Apprentice. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer demanded that the Justice Department's Inspector General launch a probe into, quote, this attempted sedition, saying it is unconscionable a Justice Department leader would conspire to subvert the people's will. Trump also complained to Justice Department leaders that the U.S. Attorney in Atlanta, Young Young Pak, was not trying to find evidence for false election claims pushed by Rudy Giuliani. Pak was subsequently warned that Trump was now fixated on his office and that it might not be tenable for him to continue to lead it. That conversation and Trump's efforts to pressure Georgia's Republican Secretary of State to find him votes compelled Pak to abruptly resign. And it was revealed that the Trump campaign paid more than $2.7 million to the organizers of the January 6th rally that led to violent riots at the U.S. Capitol. Day 4, January 23rd. The U.S. Agency for Global Media suddenly fired the heads of a number of federally funded news outlets as part of the Biden administration's sweeping effort to clear the agency of allies of Trump. 
Kelly Chow fired the heads of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Radio Free Asia, and the Middle East Broadcasting Network, as all had been appointed suddenly in December by the agency's chief executive at the time, Michael Pack. Pack is an ally of the former Trump aide Stephen Bannon. Numerous current and former employees of the agencies had accused Pack of trying to turn it into a mouthpiece for the Trump administration. Rudy Giuliani conceded that an associate had sent an email to Trump campaign officials asking that he be paid $20,000 a day for his work after the November 3rd election, but he insisted he was unaware of it at the time. An associate, Maria Ryan, sent the email shortly after Election Day, and she sent it from a Giuliani Partners email account. Anthony Fauci expanded on his time working with Trump, saying it was surreal. Fauci said he first noticed things were going south when the virus hit New York. Quote, I would try to express the gravity of the situation, and his response was, well, it's not that bad, right? And I would say, yes, it is that bad. The other thing that made me really concerned was it was clear that he was getting input from people who were calling him up saying, hey, I heard about this drug, isn't it great? And I would try to, you know, calmly explain that if you find out that something works by doing an appropriate clinical trial and not over the phone, and he'd say, oh, no, 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 this stuff really works. It was a variety of alternative medicine type approaches. It was always a guy called me up, a friend of mine from blah, blah, blah. That's when my anxiety started to escalate. Former acting U.S. Defense Secretary Christopher Miller told Vanity Fair that when he took the job in November, he had three goals. No military coup, no major war, and no troops in the street. The former Special Forces officer added, the no troops in the street thing changed dramatically around 1430 on the 6th of January, so that's one off the list. Day 5, January 24th. A Trump supporter who stormed the Capitol on January 6th threatened on social media to assassinate Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. He also threatened the Capitol police officer who fatally shot a woman as she tried to enter the Speaker's lobby. Garrett Miller was charged with, among other things, threats, knowingly entering a restricted building, violent entry, and disorderly conduct. Tarek Shah, the acting U.S. attorney for Texas, said on Twitter that Miller had, quote, allegedly bragged about storming the Capitol, called for the assassination of a congresswoman, and threatened to strangle a Capitol police officer. Texas sued the Biden administration over its decision to pause most deportations for 100 days. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton cited a last-minute agreement between that state and the Trump administration that required Homeland Security consult with the state and provide six months' notice before making changes. Paxton is also known for filing the spurious lawsuit dismissed by the Supreme Court that sought to call Biden's victory invalid. And Arizona Republicans have censured three of the party's most prominent figures. Governor Doug Ducey, former Senator Jeff Flake, and Cindy McCain, the widow of former Senator John McCain, were censured as Arizona party officials made clear their loyalty lies with Trump and not those in the party who refused to support him. The party cited McCain's and Flake's criticism of Trump and Ducey's use of emergency orders related to the pandemic. Ms. McCain replied, quote, it is a high honor to be included in a group of Americans and Arizonans who have served our state and our nation so well, and who, like my late husband John, have been censured by the Arizona GOP. McCain added she was going to make t-shirts. Day 6, January 25th. The House transmitted articles of impeachment against Trump, setting up what is expected to be another wrenching trial at the start of February. Behind the scenes, many senior Republicans are trying to get a conviction that would remove Trump from the 2024 race, but rank-and-file Republicans have been lining up behind the disgraced ex-president. 
Meanwhile, Dominion Voting Systems has sued Rudy Giuliani for saying he defamed the company by spreading accusations it rigged the 2020 election for President Biden. That lawsuit, filed in the U.S. District Court for D.C., seeks more than $1.3 billion in damages. Giuliani and his allies are accused of spreading allegations, quote, which foreseeably went viral and deceived millions of people into believing that Dominion had stolen their votes and fixed the election. Dominion supplies voting machines and other election equipment used by more than 40% of U.S. voters. Giuliani had no comment on the lawsuit. President Biden repealed a controversial Trump-era ban on transgender people serving in the military. Biden signed an executive order on the issue ahead of an Oval Office meeting with new Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. At his recent Senate confirmation hearing, Austin told lawmakers he supported the move. Trump initially ordered that ban in a series of tweets in July 2017. The Justice Department Inspector General said he is investigating whether department officials engaged in an improper attempt to overturn President Biden's victory. Trump, of course, pushed the Justice Department to ask the Supreme Court to invalidate that win. A former administration official said, quote, he wanted us, the United States, to sue one or more of the states directly in the Supreme Court. The pressure got really intense after a lawsuit Texas filed in the court against four states Mr. Biden won was dismissed on December 11th. An outside lawyer working for Trump drafted a brief statement by then-president saying he wanted the Justice Department to file the suit. People familiar with the matter said Justice Department officials refused to do so. The Supreme Court suddenly halted lawsuits accusing Trump of violating the anti-corruption provisions of the U.S. Constitution by maintaining ownership of his business empire, including a hotel near the White House, while in office. The action means that after four years of litigation, the top U.S. judicial body will not rule on the meaning and scope of the so-called emoluments provisions, which remains a largely untested area of constitutional law. The court said the cases were now moot. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky warned the government doesn't know how much vaccine the nation has. Walensky said the lack of knowledge of vaccine supply is indicative of, quote, the challenges we've been left with. And the Treasury Department is taking steps to put Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill. This was previously planned in the Obama administration, but Trump refused to let the plan move forward as it would have removed Andrew Jackson from the bill. Day 7, January 26th. President Biden moved to reopen federal marketplaces selling ACA health plans and to lower recent barriers to joining Medicaid. The pandemic deprived millions of Americans of coverage if they lost jobs due to the economic fallout of the pandemic. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell agreed on a power-sharing accord with Democrats on how to operate the Senate. At issue for McConnell was the fate of the filibuster. McConnell had sought assurances the filibuster would be preserved. Democrats said no, demanding that McConnell agree to a power-sharing agreement that followed the model used during the last 50-50 to 50 Senate, which was in 2001. That would give the party with the vice presidency and its tie-breaking powers control of the floor agenda without any additional provisions. The Oregon Republican Party falsely claimed in a resolution that there is growing evidence that the 6th of January attack on the U.S. Capitol by a pro-Trump mob was a, quote, false flag operation. The party suggested that the storming of the Capitol was an orchestrated conspiracy designed to discredit Trump, his supporters, and all conservative Republicans, and to create a sham motivation to impeach the former president. That resolution cited links to a hard-right website, as well as the Reichstag fire. The Oregon Republican Party chairman, Bill Currier, said that Oregon Republicans were working with Republicans in other states to release similar resolutions. 
Several Trump aides described an increasingly bleak job market with virtually no chance of landing jobs in corporate America. Some saw promising leads disappear after the rampage at the Capitol. A former White House official said they knew of people who got jobs rescinded because of January 6th. It's not just the lower and mid-level staffers who are getting pinched. Two people said Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who spent seven years in the House before joining the White House, is even considering a position at the Trump Organization because of a lack of other options. Twitter permanently suspended. MyPillow chief executive Mike Lindell, who is one of Trump's most conspicuous remaining public defenders, for peddling debunked conspiracy theories about voter fraud. And Kellyanne Conway allegedly posted a topless picture of her daughter, Claudia, who is 16, on Twitter. On TikTok, Claudia Conway posted videos confirming the picture was authentic. A visibly upset Claudia Conway said, quote, I'm assuming my mom took a picture of it to use against me one day and then somebody hacked her or something. I'm literally at a loss for words. If you see it, report it. Nobody would ever have any photo like that ever, so Kellyanne, you're going to jail. Day 8, January 27th. Republicans rallied against trying Trump for incitement of insurrection with only five members of his party joining Democrats and voting to move ahead with an impeachment trial. The 55 to 45 vote did clear the way for the trial, but suggested at the moment the Senate does not have the votes to convict. And the leader of the Proud Boys extremist group was revealed as a prolific informer for federal and local law enforcement, repeatedly working undercover for investigators after he was arrested in 2012. At a Miami court hearing, a federal prosecutor, an FBI agent, and his own lawyer described Enrique Tarrio's undercover work, saying he had helped authorities prosecute more than a dozen people in cases involving drugs, gambling, and human smuggling. Tarrio subsequently denied his links to the FBI, saying, quote, I don't know any of this. Tarrio, of course, is under scrutiny as it is believed his organization provided material support for rioters at the Capitol. And Republican leadership in the House of Representatives has so far taken no action against new rep and QAnon devotee Marjorie Taylor Greene after the Congresswoman made social media posts that called for executing Nancy Pelosi, Barack Obama, and Hillary Clinton. Greene publicly claimed that Hillary Clinton had cut off and donned the face of a child. Clinton told Reuters, quote, this woman should be on a watch list, not in Congress. In a bizarre statement, Green subsequently insisted the Clintons should be in jail and then claimed CNN was trying to cancel me and silence my voice. Day 9, January 28th. The U.S. economy shrank by 3.5% last year as the pandemic bit hard. 2020 showed the worst year for economic growth since 1946. It is the first time the economy has contracted for the year since 2009. It is also the worst year for growth since the nation demobbed from a wartime footing in 1946. In a major move, President Biden signed a series of executive orders that aim to, quote, confront the existential threat of climate change. Biden portrayed many of the orders as opportunities for job creation, including the purchase of a new and massive fleet of federal electric vehicles. However, it also puts climate change at the heart of all foreign policy and national security decisions. The DHS said the U.S. faces heightened threats from violent, homegrown extremists in a rare national terrorism warning. Such warnings are more common in Europe and the U.K. The DHS expects domestic extremists to target elected officials and government facilities in the coming weeks, adding they're motivated by coronavirus restrictions, the results of the election, and a strong opposition to immigration. A member of an anti-government group accused of plotting to kidnap and kill Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan has pleaded guilty and revealed new details about the group's plans to storm the Michigan Capitol and commit other violence. 
Tyke Garbin, who was listed as an airplane mechanic, agreed to testify against the other defendants charged in federal court. Eight other men have been accused of cooperating with those plans. Under Trump, the Department of Health and Human Services diverted millions of dollars in federal funds intended for vaccine research and public health emergencies to pay for salaries, administrative expenses, the removal of furniture, new subscriptions, and legal services. A report says the agency cannot account for some $517 million. The past three weeks have been the coronavirus pandemic's deadliest in the United States. 425,000 Americans have now died from the virus. Biden's new coronavirus task force yesterday said the U.S. is now in a race between the vaccine and the new variants and warned the nation still faces shortages of PPE and other supplies it will not be able to buy if Congress fails to pass a $1.9 trillion coronavirus rescue plan. Joe Biden's first approval rating puts him at 68%, that is light years ahead of where Trump was. Trump left office at 29%. These are the Biden files. Chuck Mertz chatted with scholar Rose Parfit about the legal underpinnings of the attack on the Capitol. Parfit argues that some of the rhetoric used by the mob echo arguments that were used in the formation of the nation. She also notes that the logic of the rule of law is one of violent competition, not peaceful coexistence. What does this mean for our future politics? Find out on This Is Hell every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. Rose is a senior lecturer at Kent Law School. She is the author of The Process of International Legal Reproduction. Should should be considered a coup? Is that a relevant debate or is it simply a distraction? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I th- I didn't call it a coup or maybe I did. I don't think I did. Mainly because no, you, you, seemed- you didn't. That's why I was bringing it up because yeah, I think well, that, yeah, it's a lot of good thinking there. Well, I, yeah, I mean, it was basically because it just seemed too haphazard to be a, a coup, right? Like it was, I mean, I know it was planned and there's, there's more and more evidence coming out that, of how long it was planned and how obviously it was planned and how openly. Uh, but at the same time, you know, that there didn't seem to be much of a plan beyond actually breaking in. Do you know what I mean? So, I mean, um, Morales described it as an auto coup, which I thought was quite nice. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem to be quite the point. To me, why do you why do you like the term autoku? Well, because because Trump was or he was still in power at the time, so he was trying to, in effect, like uh, um, enact a coup against himself in some kind of way. I mean, the whole seem the whole thing seemed like to be extremely muddled. Although it is partly the case that when I wrote the um, when I wrote the post. Uh, not so many details had come out at that time about exactly how violent it was. In fact, I had to change it before I submitted it because at the very beginning, it seemed like, you know, like relatively sort of peaceful, but then gradually, 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 more and more of the violence came out. So, yeah, but exactly, as you said, there doesn't seem that the military were involved. There doesn't seem to have been that kind of like covert plan. You write that many of the Trump machine's most loyal enthusiasts have now broken ranks. As for the skeptics, both in the U.S. and internationally, this attempted takeover, which left dozens injured and several people dead, has been met with a torrent of condemnation laced every so often with a splash of schadenfreude. In the U.K., for example, Boris Johnson condemned this as a disgraceful episode in the history of a country that stands for democracy around the world. What impact does the attack on the U.S. Capitol have on the concept of and faith in representative democracy internationally? What might this mean for movements overseas that are currently trying to attain some level of democracy? Well, oddly enough, 
I think, yeah, what, what, what seems to have happened um, to me anyway is that this has been seized on as an opportunity to essentially uh, re-legitimate all of the uh, institutions of the status quo that were, you know, supported by Republicans and Democrats alike, you know, for years and years and years. And that's what the invocation of fascism always does. And it's invoked all the time. I mean, particularly since 2016. Uh, and not just in relation to the states, but also Brazil and India and the UK and, and many, many, many authoritarian governments all over the place. And there's this, this huge kind of cottage industry in trying to work out, you know, is Trump a fascist, is Bolsonaro a fascist, and so on, uh, engaged in by everyone. Um, but, but what that always does by positioning the whole thing is kind of the opposite of law and order and describing it all as lawless and rioting and so on. It, 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 it repositions this kind of uh, a sense of um, representative democracy and the rule of law and capitalism as, you know, the savior from anarchy and fascism and violence and everything like that. So, yes, I think it's, it's, it's a classic example of kind of... Uh, yeah, everybody's seizing on it. People, the part, part of the reason why I chose that list of people, including Boris Johnson and Modi and everybody, is that they're not exactly the most democratic leaders that we have in the world, right? They're not exactly the most centrist or left-wing uh, on the country. But, you know, everybody, everybody on the spectrum, basically, is getting a chance to establish themselves and re-narrate themselves as, you know, uh, as the as the, the stalwarts, basically, of democracy and freedom. Local Chicago rockers Awful have a brand new single out this week, and sales of the track online will help benefit the Save Our Stages charity. This is the world radio debut of OO. Many thanks to Tracy Trouble.
complete. Now playing, Eureka Cast Now. Inspire curiosity. Imagine science. For the past few years, we've been inviting people to do uh, tests, uh, social media tests. We collect data on their social media and new media use on their general internet searches and, and things like that. Um, they were, of course, fully compensated for all of this work, and they signed off on it um, before we even started. Um, but the reason we were collecting all this data was because we had the goal to recreate somebody's social media presence as a zombot after they decease. And the first round of, of people, we, we first effectively started to be able to do this with, with a few rounds of, of some of those people that we, that we were uh, taking data from um, in the year 2020. So just to back up for a moment, um, if I'm understanding this correctly, you were um, interpolating the personalities of these individuals um, that were to be to were to dis become deceased at some point, right? And attempt to recreate that individual after they're dead. Is that is, am I understanding this correctly? Right, and you can't really recreate an individual just yet to to a great extent, I should say, with modern technologies. Um, but when it comes to social media, it's considerably um, easier. So after that person was to decease, um, we leave a three week grace period for families to mourn, and after that three weeks is up, we would start we would basically create another social media account that was identical to the one that they had or possibly in some cases still still had you know people don't generally delete you know that quickly um but we would recreate that and we would uh you know post uh messages uh, message people post uh uh you know um updates and thoughts in, in some cases we were even able to post photographs and and, and videos that were completely uh algorithmically generated was there a clear indication to um, perhaps people that knew the recently deceased that this was a bot? Was that was that taken into account? Well, no. What we what we were trying to do was we were trying to track how people interacted with these with these zombies. We it's you know we can't that that would be you know getting rid of the that would be unblinding our our tests, Rowan, and that's right. not really good for science. Right. So sort of a Turing test sort of approach to it. Right. If, sort of. if if the loved one recognized that this was not their 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 deceased relative, then it would have failed the Turing test. Um, right. Or or for you know for example if you know if that bot or or this this new person if, if that friend thought that this person had changed to a degree that they no longer wanted to be a part of, um, then that would be an important data point too. Like we want to recreate that person as they were in social media in their real life. Well, that is very fascinating and um, has some, certainly has some interesting applications, but I also, I, 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 I'm getting, I'm, I'm getting the hints that this did not necessarily work out in your, um, I, I could see there being some uh, some negative reactions to this. Right. To I mean, this. and this is very unfortunate. Uh, in fact, it is in some in some ways, it's the people's the people that we were taking uh, sort of uh, we we were recreating the presence of. It was sort of their fault for not giving us access to to certain data. But but as it turns out, some of the individuals that we had, you know, started these accounts for already. What it turns out um, is that they weren't actually dead. Eureka Cast Now, broadcasting Saturdays, 8 to 9 p.m. on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future.
The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shannon Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Thank you.